You're listening to On Script, a new podcast bringing you conversations on current biblical scholarship. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for joining us. Okay, welcome, On Script listeners. I hope this podcast finds you well and primed to repent of the ways you've previously thought about repentance, or at least prepared to engage in challenging and bold new proposal by David Lambert of University of North Carolina, who has written a new book, How Repentance Became Biblical, Judaism, Christianity, and the Interpretation of Scripture, published by Oxford University Press. David, welcome to OnScript. Hi, Matt. Thank you. It's great to be here. David Lambert is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He received his PhD, MA, and AB from uh, Harvard's uh, Near Eastern Language and Civilizations program and has taught Hebrew Bible at Emory University, where we met, and now at UNC, and also in Texas as well. Now, for the most important leadoff question, uh, David, you had me as a student at Emory, and I worked <laughs> I worked hard in your classes, and, and I even did some TA work for you, uh, but, but I did notice you didn't dedicate the book to me. Was this, <laughs> was, was this an oversight on the part of the publisher? <laughs> Well, yes, you you were indeed a prized student at at, at Emory, and uh, it's uh, uh, been great to to stay in touch with you. But um, my my wife really did have to really had first claims on on, on this one. Yeah. Okay, okay, that's uh, fair <laughs> enough. So you've been working on this book for some time now. I'm wondering if you could take us on a quick tour of how this book came into being and describe some of the key moments in the story. Of its formation. Yeah. Um, well, in many ways, uh, this book brought me into being as a scholar. Um, when I first started thinking about the topic, I was still a graduate student and was uh, really interested in a variety, in working in with a variety of different time periods, uh, particularly focusing on Jewish studies. Uh, but I had interests even in the in the in the medieval period and in, in, in rabbinics, um, ancient Judaism. And I wanted to look at how people conceptualize their lives as narratives. That was the kind of broader overarching uh, question, really, that brought me to the concept of repentance. Because it occurred to me then, pretty fairly early on, that repentance really was one of the primary dominant concepts for how to think about these kinds of narratives among um, um, Jews and also Christians um, uh, as well. Now, what happened, though, was as I started to research this question of the history of repentance and different notions of repentance, what I discovered was that, in fact, the really interesting story here was not simply a kind of linear development of, of repentance as a concept, but all of the places where I expected to find repentance and, in fact, couldn't. All of the, all the various uh, aspects of, in particular, biblical literature, which I assumed would be the origins for the concept, uh, where, in fact, uh, it, it didn't seem to be uh, operating. So I quickly shifted focus. And, in fact, that had long-term implications for my career uh, as a biblical scholar, uh, because I basically then needed to train as a biblical scholar and really went back to become an expert um, in that field. And it drew me in for all kinds of other reasons then at that point. Uh, but in many ways, the, the, the book has really 
um, determined who I am as a scholar. Hmm. So you kind of went to biblical studies out of necessity and have gotten stuck there a bit. <laughs> That's right. But it, <clears throat> and I hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about this a little bit more later as well. Uh, but my interest in later periods then also became a hallmark, really, of how I approach biblical studies uh, in terms of not just looking at the original context, uh, but then also try to look at subsequent recontextualization, so to speak, of the biblical material in later uh, periods of literature as well. So that leads me to another question about the role and significance of repentance within modern-day Judaism. It seems that your work depends on a, a contrast between modern and ancient conceptions of repentance, but some of our listeners may not be familiar with the significance of repentance for Jews in the modern and contemporary periods. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, as in Christianity, um, there's a whole series of terms, you might even say technical uh, terms, uh, around repentance in uh, rabbinic Judaism. The primary one being tshuva. Um, uh, the term tshuva uh, really means something very much like repentance, although some scholars have tried to suggest uh, uh, otherwise, but it, it would seem to actually be very close to the concept of repentance that one finds in early Christian circles. Now, tshuva operates over the course of a year. There is a wonderful um, uh, rabbinic saying that if you see a righteous person sin by day, uh, you should assume, or at night, say, you should assume that over the night they've repented for their sin, and therefore you can continue to treat them and relate to them as a righteous person. So repentance is something that can happen on a daily basis as a consequence of some sin, um, but it's also, very interestingly, tied to particular periods of the year. So in particular, uh, the 10 days between the New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, are known as the Days of Repentance. And these are supposed to be days uh, in which Jews are considering uh, their, the, their, their actions over the course of the past year, uh, examining themselves, uh, and seeking out any wrongdoing they may have done, uh, as well as approaching uh, any neighbors, uh, friends, family that they feel they may have wronged over the year to ask for their forgiveness, so that by the time you get to Yom Kippur, which in many ways today is seen as a day of repentance, primarily, uh, you are free of your sins, you have repented for your sins, and are ready to have them cleansed and forgiven. So for a lot of Jews and Christians, it's an assumption that those ideas come straight out of Scripture. And in your book, you're arguing something different. I'm wondering if you could just provide uh, a brief uh, flyby overview of the primary argument of your book and what it is you're doing. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right, Matt. We tend to, Jews and Christians tend to what I call ground our concepts, our primary religious ideals in the Bible itself. Uh, we look at the Bible as the source that authorizes our religious beliefs, and therefore it becomes very important for us to see the Bible as, in fact, containing those beliefs. And I would add, this is true not just of Jews and Christians, uh, but even um, in many ways more secular versions uh, of these kinds of accounts. Uh, people frequently speak of, for instance, Western civilization uh, as having two main sources 
right? You have the, the Near East, the Bible, and you have ancient ancient Greece as well. And so again, this is a way of relating to the Bible as a source for our current ideals, as a source for uh, Western civilization. What I found was that, in fact, there was a pervasive tendency to see the Bible as representing an ideal of repentance among uh, Jews and Christians, particularly you know, around the turn of the Common Era. But that when you went back somewhat earlier to the Bible itself, to the biblical text itself, and re-examined the material, that it was strikingly absent from all kinds of places that we would have expected to find it. So actually, for me, this came up for the first time uh, when I just was sort of doing a survey of the of the Hebrew Bible and noticed that, you know, fasting, which today many of us think has to do with repentance for instance within the jewish tradition one fasts on the day uh, on uh, you, you fast on yom kippur uh, as part of this atoning for your sin um well fasting in the bible didn't really seem to come up in the context of repentance frequently it didn't even come up in the context of sin so this forced me to rethink uh, what it meant to fast and eventually to rethink what it meant to confess to rethink some of the terms, some of the Hebrew terms in the Bible that we have come to associate with repentance, as well as to rethink the nature of, of prophecy, uh, which is, as an institution, we've often seen as a way of religious leaders preaching to their audience to change their ways uh, and repent. So it sounds like this book required the examination of some pretty basic fundamental ideas and concepts and from reading your book it, it's clear that your project is not just a big word study on the Hebrew term shuv or turn sometimes translated to repent uh, but you're looking at a whole host of issues that converge on and make possible an understanding of that term so you're looking at subjectivity interiority virtue didacticism and so on so these are all pretty major subjects I'm wondering if you could just break down for us why you couldn't just look at the meaning of the Hebrew term shuv, but instead had to contextualize it so broadly. And as you did that, what did you see? Yeah, well, um, I think the important thing to realize is that language is just a part of the way in which we institutionalize ideas, that the institutionalization of, of, of concepts such as repentance, often receive their strongest, most pronounced uh, focus, uh, not just through our language, although clearly language is important, the formulation of concepts into terms. And that's one of the things that we see in the post-biblical period, this, this kind of deliberate development of a terminology around repentance as a way of promoting its existence and primacy as a concept. But it's not just about terms. It's also about things like ritual. Um, how practices, ritual practices, can embed and further the notion of, of repentance. So again, uh, I can return to the example of, of Judaism that we've uh, been kind of uh, considering. Uh, the fact that there is this dramatic fasting process that one does on an annual basis on Yom Kippur in, in many ways creates a behavioral, physical act, which 
then allows us to ask the question, okay, what is behind that act? What am I supposed to be doing with such a extreme kind of behavior? And creates an opening to say, well, really what it is, is a kind of expression of, of repentance. And it's, in addition to that, um, there are other layers to how concepts get developed. So there's also the pedagogical layer. There is that sense that when a religious leader stands before uh, his or her audience and speaks to them, that what they are trying to do is to further the moral, religious, spiritual development of their congregants. And this image is applied directly back onto the Israelite prophets, but in fact probably is not an apt way of describing what those Israelite prophets were originally up to. So that, that was one of the things that really helped me as I was reading the book is your challenge that you expressed, uh, especially well in the postscript, that you're trying to inspire readers to look at the biblical text, not just ask the question, what's the what's the real significance of what we see happening on the surface of the biblical text? For instance, if someone's fasting, they must be expressing some inner sorrow over sin. Uh, but, but you're saying, what is it that the practice of fasting or uh, appealing to God is doing? So what you're asking readers to look at what you call a, a kind of material uh, materiality of the text. So let's take the example of fasting, and if it's not about expressing sorrow over sin, in the context of failures, like national failures, why would someone fast if not for that reason? Yeah. Um, well, uh, that's an important question. And the first thing to realize is that fasting as a practice almost never occurs alone in the Bible. It occurs with other uh forms of mourning. So, for instance, uh, we might find uh, the, the removal of one's normal, normal clothes and the replacement of those clothes with sackcloth. Uh, in addition to that, frequently we'll find the application upon the head of, and presumably the body as well, of dust and ashes. We'll also frequently find that people uh, engaged in these type of mourning practices will position themselves um, uh, to be lying prone upon the ground in, in, in one way or another. Now, to me, uh, when I read these texts and look at their immediate, uh, as you said, material kind of consequences, uh, what we have here most evidently is an attempt to inscribe the disaster that is befalling the Israelites or whomever is fasting upon the body. And in fact, fasting occurs invariably only in contexts where the disaster that threatens the individual or the community is not yet manifest upon their body. In other words, to give you an example, if locusts come and consume your entire crop for next year, and this seems to be the kind of story behind the book of Joel. Well, at the moment, you're okay. You still have last year's bounty. However, you know quite well that this in many ways represents your doom. So how do you deal with this? What you need to do is you need to find a way to manifest that bodily. 
Well, why? Well, first of all, there's a certain kind of natural quality to that. If disaster strikes, you reflect that disaster upon your body. So there's a kind of immediacy. This is not necessarily a fully intentional kind of an act. However, there are certain positive results that can ensue from that type of inscription of disaster upon your body. Namely, the deity, God, sees your affliction. And this God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is frequently portrayed as a kind of emperor who is specially responsible to protect those who are down and out in his society. So, for instance, the widows and the orphans, as we find in the Covenant Code, if you oppress them and they cry out to God, you better watch out. That's going to be a big problem. He's going to respond to them right away. So I think it's something similar similar is going on here. When you manifest your distress upon your body, that creates an opening now for the deity to respond. And I think that for me, the hallmark example of this that I um, begin really my chapter with is, is Hannah. Hannah has it all. She's the preferred wife of her husband. She gets a double portion whenever they have a feast, but she's barren. How can Hannah pray? How can Hannah achieve what she wants to achieve? If she wants to be able to have a child, she needs to find a way of changing her status. She needs to find a way of being a person who is afflicted. And so she must refuse the food at the feast that her husband provides to her. And instead, in tears and in terms of petition, approach the deity from a state of affliction as opposed to from a state of bounty and plenty. Yeah, and of course, there's a conception of God that stands behind this as well uh, that you mentioned. And so, so Hannah's moving herself into the category as an afflicted one because that's the kind of people that God is especially attentive to. Right. Um, that's right. And so then you talk about how there are times then that uh, that appeal process that uh, people engage in using fasting and mourning and so on, it fails. And so I uh, just wondering if you could talk briefly about what happens then uh, in the, the sort of drama of, of appeal to God. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that can be hard for people to understand uh, about uh this argument or it makes them want to keep slipping repentance in. It's clear that what we're talking about here is not simply an instrument that can be used in all circumstances. I'm not trying to argue, for instance, that all you need to do is appeal to the deity, that uh, sin and morality uh, no longer are, are issues. What I'm suggesting instead is that fasting is not itself or appeal is not itself an instrument of morality, that it is a way of appealing to the deity as a person in, in need. And, um, and we may want to return also to that question of different notions of God, because that is part of what's behind here as well. Um, but uh, just to continue on this vein, uh, that, what that means is, if you appeal to, to God, perhaps he sees your plight, he's moved by your plight, but then he notices that, in fact, you yourself are guilty of oppressing others. 
that you yourself perhaps have stolen some sort of object uh, that should have belonged to the to the priests, to the temple. And I'm thinking of here the story of Joshua and I. Um, uh, <clears throat> and and uh, and Achan, who's who who causes Israel's loss there um, in that in that battle. If God looks out onto the people or onto an individual and sees the appeal, sees the need, but also sees sin, he is going to. And there are different terms that the prophets and others use to describe what ensues. But he is not going to hear that prayer. One possibility is. He prevents the prayer from going up. Another possibility is he prevents the people from even praying in the first place so that he doesn't have to hear it. Uh, or he just rejects it altogether. Um, so there, there are various kinds of possibilities here, but it's clear that there is a separate issue of, of sin and sin needing to be disposed of. And that is why in certain particularly later biblical texts, you see what I think of as dual tracks, dual processes, whereby appeal occurs, but simultaneous with appeal, there also needs to be a process of removing sin so that that doesn't interfere with the appeal process. Now, some people have merged these two and understood the appeal as simply an expression of sorrow over the sin. And that's where I think the mistake lies. We're really dealing here with two different separate tracks. Yeah, and the, one of the passages that, that came to mind for me, and I forget if you talk about this in the book, is Isaiah 1 where the prophet is indicting the people and saying, you bring your sacrifices and you lift up your hands in prayer to me, but they're covered in blood. And so you need to deal with that bloodshed, bloodshedding problem in your community before you then come and lift up your hands and appeal. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, that, that blood interferes with the normal functioning of appeal and that's also when society begins to, in this, in this concept uh, uh, that we see coming up over and over again in the Bible, that's when society begins to fail, right? Because if the regular appeal processes fail, and, and in, as part of those regular appeal processes, I would also include the various forms of temple worship, many of which are designed toward just ensuring the regular blessing from the deity. If those fail, then all sorts of horrors can ensue. Society and the world basically slips back into uh, this kind of primordial chaotic state. So let's, let's just take stock so far. So what we've talked about are these different rights. And, uh, you know, one of the, the ways that they don't necessarily represent a penitential stance on the part of the worshiper and the devotee of God. You know, your mention of the, the word pedagogy brings me to the second major part of your book where you you talk about the the common idea of the prophet as a preacher of repentance trying to uh, bring his audience to a point of expressing sorrow over sin and and thereby improving the community how does your view of the prophet differ from that predominant model well that is a uh, uh, an important kind of central chapter of the book, and it is quite an involved uh, argument because it really requires us to rethink not only the nature of the prophet, but the nature of God, because ultimately um, what the prophet is, is doing in many ways is serving as a mouthpiece uh, for, for the deity. 
but to put it in uh, just to kind of give an overall summary, I think that what we need to see and recognize uh, is the, what I like to refer to as the, the, the element of power in the prophetic utterance. And there are a couple of different aspects to this question of power. The first is that the prophetic utterance has a certain kind of power in and of itself. It is what we might call a speech act. Um, and as such, in, try, in terms of trying to understand why the prophets would be going on and on and on uh, with these uh, kinds of, of utterances, we sometimes fall into this pedagogical model as if they're haranguing their audience, even though what the prophets are saying is never, you guys can change, you should really change, you should really repent. There Again, there are a few passages that we like to turn to to make that argument, but I'm talking about the majority of the passages um, as, as a whole. Uh, but rather they say something like, you're all going to die, and here's why. Um, so what I like to suggest... It's, it's a really hopeful image of the prophet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you know, even Jonah, who we put forward as this preacher of repentance, I mean, what does he say? He says, you know, 40 days and you're out of here. He doesn't say anything about repentance, right? Um, it's the people who then try to respond with a series of processes around appeal and the removal of sin. Uh, but in any event, so I think that part of it is the sense that if a prophet of God, if a prophet of YHWH, the deity of Israel, utters a statement saying that you're going to be destroyed, and then in fact there is an act of destruction, this is very important because this ties the destruction to the deity. Well, you could say, why would the deity want destruction to be tied to him? I mean, why is that what the prophets would be after? Well, in fact, there was a serious problem in ancient Israel. Israel was not one of the stronger countries. It was not well positioned economically, uh, being entirely dependent upon rain. It didn't have the mighty Tigris and Euphrates to feed it uh, and to, or, or the Nile um, to, to enable uh, produce. Uh, they were caught right in the middle between two great empires. Life was pretty rough in ancient Israel. And the reality was that frequently they were invaded Frequently, they suffered from famine. But how do you explain that? How do you explain that if you believe you have this covenant with this deity who has promised you prosperity and fertility in the land? How do you deal with that fact? You have to explain that. Well, the first thing that you need to do is to argue that your God is not powerless, despite the appearance of that. You need to argue that, in fact, he's the one doing it. He's the one empowered. It's not the Babylonians. They're nothing. They're really just doing what God is making them do. They're really just representatives. And so, but that sounds awful. I mean, how could God be just sort of arbitrarily um, causing his people to suffer? What kind of a deity is that? Even if he's powerful, why would we want to believe in him? Uh, why would we support him? Well, then that needs to be justified. No emperor can act with power without some kind of justification. If he acts without that sort of righteousness, he loses his throne. Well, it's the same thing uh, with deities as well. And so the prophets, when they announce judgment upon Israel, need to not only announce it, they need to explain it. And that's why nearly every prof prophetic utterance comes down to not only a judgment, but also an accusation. Now, what we assume is, come on, you know, we can't imagine that the prophets are going around just telling people, their judgment and giving them giving them the explanation. There must be some deeper 
pedagogical moral purpose to these utterances. It must be that they're really just trying to get the people to feel badly or trying to scare the people so that they then turn around and repent. But I think when we make that kind of reading, what we're doing really is not reading what the text says, but rather reading the gaps or the absences in the text. And I think, think we need to ask why. I think the answer to why is because we do very much have this kind of pedagogical apparatus that we're functioning with, and we're not as attuned to questions of power, which in many ways we're very uncomfortable discussing. Yeah, and I, I think that that kind of reading of the prophets is really helpful in a book like Ezekiel, where a lot of what Ezekiel is saying to the people is, look, you are going to be reduced to submission. And it's interesting, too, because in that book, you also have a strong theology of divine recreation operating at the same time, or at least at a later point in that book, uh, which ties into your your idea that alongside this idea that um, the, the prophet is is the interpreter and the you know the one who's naming the actor in history as God um, is the idea that change will only come about by a sort of apocalyptic or radical inbreaking recreative act of God rather than by some internal um, agency of the audience themselves. That, that's exactly right. And, and furthermore, um, uh, the question really becomes, I mean, why would God even do this? So again, we, we fall back on that pedagogical model. Uh, but it is uh, in Ezekiel, there's a very striking uh, rhetoric there of um, really of God's concern for his own name. What does it mean? And this, again, fits into what I was just suge suggesting about the prophets. What does it mean for God's people? to have been, had their temple destroyed and been exiled to Mesopotamia. How do we explain that? What kind of a, what kind of a disgrace is it to YHWH to have his people sitting in Babylon, suffering, even if they deserved it? And so what Ezekiel argues is that ultimately, yes, he's going to have to do something about this. He's going to have to reinitiate the relationship, recreate Israel, in order to save his own name, he's very happy to let Israel recognize that without him, they would be just suffering in their sin. Um, but at the end of the day, he still has to act. He has to act. And in this time, when he acts, he's going to transform their nature so he doesn't run into this kind of problem again. Yeah, and so you get that repeated refrain in Ezekiel, uh, so they will know that I am uh, God or, or the Lord. And so, That's so that right. gets repeated a lot in the book. This emphasis on divine recognition, which also comes up in the the plagues uh, narrative in the book of Exodus, that that divine recognition is kind of what that whole story is about. That's right. Um, I want to move to the third part of your book, um, where you talk about some of the significant shifts that you see taking place within uh, early Jewish literature. And just as a review for uh, our listeners. You know, what you're doing in this book is not just a, a study of the term repentance, but, but rather a kind of case study uh, of a larger methodology that you want to suggest in terms of how we should look at biblical concepts uh, shifting through time and using that as a way to understand the, not only the biblical world, but also ourselves as interpreters. 
Um, so where do you see uh, the idea of repentance as we might know it now <laughs> starting to appear in early Jewish literature or um, or later texts? Um, well, uh, that that right as you said that's the uh, really what's taken up in the last chapter and I, I just wanted to um, also say something about the kind of methodological question first uh, but I, I I think you know people a lot of time like to say you know everything in the Bible has been covered you know what what topic hasn't been discussed I, when I look at uh, biblical studies I see tons of material uh, that really is just waiting to be reconsidered. Uh, in fresh studies, uh, because I, because of exactly the methodological point uh, that that you're making, when we just examine the biblical material, we're often not able to become aware of our own assumptions um, as readers. Uh, we're often not able to siphon out what are the differences between the ancient Israelite world and subsequent developments. And so, what I really tried to do in this project. Uh, is to uh, integrate a study of the Bible with an interest in uh, the subsequent history of Judaism and Christianity by way of being able to develop a sense of contrast or or difference. And when I think you follow that relatively straightforward methodology, uh, there are all kinds of new observations that come up. And for me, uh, with regard to the question of of repentance, I really then think you can start to see the concept. You start to see different ways of using the term, different contexts in which uh, terminology around particularly this root shuv, um, which in the Bible means something like turn or turn back, ways in which it's used in the writings of Ben Sira. So we're, we're talking about the second century BCE. There, for instance, you'll find the idea, which we also find later on in rabbinic literature, that if you do something wrong, you should turn back before you are ill, or if you do become ill, you should turn back. Now, what that tells me is that we've developed a sense of shuv, of turning, as a discrete act, and that we don't find in the biblical material. Shuv in the biblical material is a kind of broader turning away from a range of behaviors that's much more kind of generalized behavior. Um, so you don't repent from a particular act in the Bible. You don't repent from a sin in the Bible. You remove sin in a general way, right? And, and, as far as how that terminology of shuv is used. Just on that point real quick, what about like in Jonah where they turned from violence uh, that was in their hands? Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they basically, what that means is that as a community, they have abandoned the, whether this is a stolen property or whether it's a range of behaviors of wrongdoing, they've abandoned those. Um, but that's a broader behavioral transformation. It's not a single moment in time. It's not a singular act. Whereas when you get to Ben Sira, Ben Sira can say, oh, if you sin, one sin, not a broader range of sin, not a life of sin. If you sin, repent. You could sin again, repent again. Um, so repentance has become this kind of what I like to call discrete act. Uh, you see that in Ben Sir. The question is, where is this all co coming from? It also seems to be, in, for various reasons, uh, becomes an internal, seems to be much more internal in Ben Sir as well. Where is this all coming from? Well, there are two places early on where I find repentance to be 
attested more clearly than anywhere else. Um, and here, it's, it, these are Greek sources. And so the term is metanoia. And the, the place, it's very telling uh, where, where this term is found and how it's used. Uh, it appears in the writings of Philo of Alexandria, uh, a Jewish uh, philosopher, very aware of various forms of Platonism uh, in his time. And it also appears, now here's what I think would be surprising to many, in the writings of Plutarch, neither a Jew or, nor a Christian. It's very important to him. And he too inherits is a, is a certain kind of interpreter and inherits a certain form of Platonism that we generally refer to as middle Platonism. Now, scholars, when they looked at the Philo material in the past said, oh yeah, repentance is important to Philo because he's getting it from his Jewish background. But as I moved through my study and realized that there was no such background, and as I discovered that repentance was so important in Plutarch as well, who certainly was not getting it from his non-existent Jewish background, I, I realized that it's quite possible that this concept had a different source and that, in fact, it should be located uh, within Hellenistic philosophy as a technique for the care of the self. Yeah, and I think it's important for just for our listeners to know that it, when we think of philosophy, we might think of just metaphysical questions, but philosophers at this time were very interested in moral transformation of, of the person, moral That's formation. Right. They were very interested in what you even might call technologies of how to ensure that you are living a righteous life and becoming righteous. And repentance was one of those technologies for them. It worked something like this. Plutarch tells the story, uh, gives the analogy of a sailor, a captain, who has managed to shipwreck his ship on some unknown rocks under the water. Well, that captain is going to remember his past mistake, store it up as pain. The pain of that error will be remembered by him forever. And the next time he passes by those same rocks, he's going to make sure not to make the same mistake. That, Plutarch says, is what metanoia is, what repentance is. Yeah, and you talk about uh, Plutarch's idea that that pain becomes a sort of counselor that prevents the relapse uh, into you know, whatever mistakes you've made. That's right. Yeah. Um, so then how do you see this playing out in the, the New Testament as well? So the New Testament and looking at the New Testament, of course, opens up a whole new can of worms because um, people have different kinds of um, interests when we, we get to the New Testament. If you look at the earliest sources describing Jesus's ministry, they do not seem to focus on him as a preacher of repentance. What do you see him doing? He's engaged in exorcism. He is hinting at the, the incoming of the kingdom, the kingdom, the appearance of the, of the kingdom. He's engaged in healing. He's bringing the good news. He's a bearer of the good news of the, the, the gospel, that is to say, right? The, the, the good news of the coming kingdom. Uh, but he does not seem to be preaching repentance. However, when you get to the later uh, editorial levels of the Synoptic Gospels, repentance all of a sudden becomes very important. So, for instance, in Mark, uh, the, the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, thought to be by most earlier uh, than Luke and Matthew, 
you'll find the statement that Jesus ate with sinners. And he's asked why. And he says, well, you know, do sinners need a, a do, 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 you know, it's like, it's like a doctor. Does a doctor uh, heal the healthy? Right? The doctor heals uh, the sick. Well, people often assume that has to do with repentance. Because when you get to the Gospel of Luke, Luke takes that same passage and adds two very simple words. For the purpose of repentance, he writes in Greek. That is to say, he adds repentance when he said, when Jesus says, I've come uh, to, 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 to call sinners, he adds on for the purpose of repentance. However, there are other kinds of relationships that we could imagine transpiring between Jesus and the sinners. Uh, other forms of healing, even the image of healing, doesn't necessarily suggest that the sinners are repenting, but suggests more that Jesus has some kind of more direct sort of power to transform them uh, in one way uh, or another. So Luke adds in repentance there, and he adds in repentance in countless other examples uh, throughout uh, the, the Gospels as, as well. So it does seem to be that there is a complex history uh, around metanoia, within the traditions of the Synoptic Gospels, in which earlier portrayals of Jesus are focusing on him uh, more as a, a kind of um, bringing in and ushering in an end, an end time, whereas later sources are trying to tame the message somewhat, you might say, and turn it more toward morality, more toward uh, what might have been an emerging concern of the churches, the various churches, to ensure the morality of their members even after they've been initiated into Christianity, which is a problem that Paul is also uh, aware of. How do we maintain morality at that point? And so the introduction there of repentance and Jesus as a preacher of repentance serves as a way of really transforming early Christianity from this initial apocalyptic sect into a much broader movement that can also find ways of managing and maintaining discipline uh, among its members. So I guess the you know, follow-up question I have with that is, in Luke, how do we know what is included in that uh, phrase uh, for the purpose of repentance? It, does it include all the moral connotations that you mentioned, or could it be a sort of turning, turning to be part of this community or part of the kingdom, or turning from evil deeds in general. Right. So here it's actually useful to look at not just Luke, but also Acts, which, of course, was uh, uh, put together by uh, <clears throat> the, the same author, editor. Um, and um, and what you see is that frequently, uh, in this case, the verbal form, metanaeo, uh, is juxtaposed with a positive sense of turning. So in this case, uh, repentance is Car is represents the negative component, what you turn away from. And then there's also a positive component of turning to Jesus, turning to baptism, um, basically turning to uh, this early Jesus movement, turning to Christianity. Uh, so just to be clear, the negative component, it seems to be always what metanoia is after. So the, for instance, the Jews are told to do metanoia for the sin of having killed Jesus. Or 
um, to do metanoia for idolatry. So metanoia, metanoeo are always associated with the negative, usually associated with sins of murder, bloodshed, sins of idolatry, um, potentially sins of financial malfeasance. We see that in Luke as well with the tax collectors, for instance. These are the big uh, three sins uh, that, that come up over and over again within uh, Judaism as well as the sorts of things uh, for which uh, repentance can be deployed as a mechanism for abandoning prior mistakes. And that brings us back to Plutarch, right? Metanoia is a form of pain that allows us to separate ourselves from our former lives, from our former acts. And of course, that, that negative component has a positive power as well. And I think that's what's being deployed within our early Christianity as a, as a mechanism for becoming something new. You need to have pain for what you were before. So we've looked at the, the kind of broad sweep of the development of this idea of repentance. And in your postscript, uh, I just want to step back from this for a moment uh, because your interest is not simply with the, uh, the development of the idea of repentance. Um, you state that the greatest abiding concern for you is a mode of reading that trains us to look beyond, within, or under at everything except that which is immediately before us as interpreters. Could you just explain what you mean there and how this book was an attempt to overcome that tendency? Yeah, um, I mean, when I originally set, uh, set out to, to work on this book, I thought that my main argument was going to be, you know, back in the day, there was no repentance, and then a repentance arose for the following reasons. And I still think that there is some, some, there is truth to that. But as I matured, I think, as a scholar, I became much more interested, I became much less interested in, in the question of, was it repentance? Was it not repentance? When did it start? When didn't it start? But much, but started to think much more about ourselves, about myself and about us as moderns in terms of how we read. What does it mean for us to read repentance into the Bible? Why do we read a certain passage of penitent, uh, as penitential? What does that tell us about our own sense of self? What does it tell us about ourselves as readers? And can we think about ourselves and read differently? So it became much more reflexive um, in, in that sense. And what emerged from that new focus, which is really for me, I think, uh, the most important contribution of, of the book, uh, less the question of, you know, was this person actually repenting or not? And much more the question of, you know, what does it mean for us to want to read that person as repenting? What emerged is that we do have this very peculiar way of focusing on the interior, on focusing on what's inside. And this has to do with our own contemporary sense of self, which can already be seen as emerging um, uh, with the development of, you know, already back in this Hellenistic period as well. Um, but ultimately, uh, this sense of self trains us to focus on what we call insides as where our true authentic being lies. And that causes us frequently to look past the evidence of the present, to look past what is before us, to look past what people are saying, to try to find that authentic self. And what I realized as I worked on this project is the idea, the very idea of an authentic self, is itself a kind of cultural construct, one that 
perhaps has its uses and has its profundity, but also threatens to really misguide us in terms of how we read, how we interpret the people around us in our own lives, how we interpret other cultures, how we interpret people from other backgrounds. When we look for what is authentic, we look past what is present and what is immediate. And I see ourselves as doing that as scholars uh, when we read the Bible. And I also see uh, ourselves doing that in other contemporary political social contexts in our daily lives. Uh, as well. And I think it's I think it's an important thing to become aware of. And that's ultimately what the hope that I had for this book, uh, that it really reveals this kind of broader reading tendency that I believe uh, somewhere we all have. Well, I think that's a great place to end and leave our listeners uh, as a final challenge. And as a reminder, we have a link to David's book on our in our podcast notes on the onscript.study website where you can go and purchase uh, his book. And uh, if you have comments about the episode, please leave them on our Facebook page. David, thank you for taking the time to discuss your book. Thank you very much, Matt, for your for your deep reading of, of, of the book and for uh, uh, enabling me to get it, have a chance to, to talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our website, onscript.study. Thank you.